Good morning, Reach Montreal, and everybody joining us online. We're so glad you're here as we continue our series, Scripture, God's Word, Our Lives. Before we jump in, let me just pray for us right off the bat. Uh, Father, we just thank you that we are still able to uh, be together like this as a church, that we can kind of get around your word, word and just hear what you are saying and what you are speaking into our lives. And I just pray that you would just, just guide us this morning as we look again at kind of the macro level story of the Bible and what the Bible is actually saying and how we can be changed by it and apply it well in our lives today. So we invite you into this time and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So if you remember, if you've been tracking with us in this series, if you remember last week, uh, Tim preached and kind of brought us through the relational nature of the Bible, the purpose of the Bible, kind of the, the means to the end and the end being relationship with God, the God that's revealed through the pages of the Bible. And he stressed a passage from 2 Timothy 3, looking at the nature of scripture as being God breathed. That, that there's, there's this idea that scripture is actually breathed out by God. It's God's breath and what it's saying, but it's through human voices and how it's said. And this week, what we want to do is just ask the question and pose the question of, so what is God actually saying with that breath then? What is the kind of story of the Bible? Now, obviously, that is a massive question that takes centuries of, to unpack and, and get into. So we're not going to do a lot of justice to some of the specifics. But what I want to do this morning is I want to draw our attention kind of at the 30,000 foot up level. I want us to get, have our attention drawn to the kind of the meta narrative or the macro level story that the Bible tells. And then that gives us an opportunity to apply it. So before we jump into some of those things, let me remind you of the definition we've been working with through this series. We've been kind of using a working definition of the Bible, and here's what we've been working with. The Bible is a library of writings that are both human and divine that tell one unified story leading us to Jesus. Okay, both divine and human telling one unified story leading us to Jesus. Now, as we've been looking at different aspects of the Bible, we've seen that, that the Bible, although we call it a book, is actually many books. That it's a sophisticated and complex library of writings, not just one. And that changes a lot. That changes everything and how we approach it, how we read it, how we apply it. Why? Well, because different writings require different rules, different rules of interpretation, different strategies to approach different types of literature. So for you and I, no wonder we kind of struggle sometimes in our morning Devo to connect with scripture for 15 minutes and apply it to our daily life before we head to work because it's complex. It's, it's huge. There's a hugeness to this. Lots of different genres, different things that we don't really know what to do with sometimes and how to understand them and apply them. And what we've seen over this series is we've looked at specifically two of those types of literature, two of those genres that the Bible's made up most of, and that is story and poetry. That 43% of the Bible is is story. It's narrative. It's narrative prose, right? And another 33% is poetry. So that brings us to 76%. Three quarters of the Bible is story and poetry. Story as, as invitation and poetry as kind of formation, most of the Bible then is not, it's not laws, it's not rules, it's not commands, but story and poetry. Now, that's really important because it begs the question for us, when God does breathe out, when God does speak through scripture, how does he do it most of the time? 
How does he do it most of the time? Well, he does it relationally. He does it poetically. He does it through story. So kind of the psychological question of is that more left brain or, or right brain? Well, well, both for sure. But left brain kind of analytical, logical, factual things are far outweighed by engaging the right brain, the creative, the artistic, the emotive, the imaginative. And that speaks volumes when we are approaching, approaching the Bible and what the Bible does say. Now, there's lots that can be said about kind of the nature of story and poetry, but just quickly, all of us know what it means to kind of get lost in a good story. It's an invitation, not just kind of for information and facts about something, but it's actually an invitation to be immersed in something, in a world, in a context with real setting, with real characters, with a a primary driving plot, with conflicts and resolution and tension. and, And there's something that you feel as you get lost in a good story. And poetry, similarly, it's, it's very emotional. There's an effective aspect to it. There's an aesthetic, aesthetic with words that happens there. There's an artistic nature to poetry where you're taking language and you're actually crafting art with those words. The primary goal of poetry isn't to communicate information, but it's also to invite you as a hearer or as a reader into a lived experience. Poetry are words that, that cause something in you a lived experience, something that you should be feeling or thinking. And if the Bible is primarily story and poetry, then we really need to ask the question how that changes how we approach it and what we're looking at the Bible for. Now, Christians do believe that the Bible is authoritative. We say that, that that the Bible is authoritative in the life of a believer. But the question remains, how is a story or a poem authoritative? How are stories and poems authoritative in what they say and what they do to us? I would say that. I don't think stories and poems are authoritative in what they say, but in what they do to you in what they say. And that changes a lot. It really does. And because for you and I in the West, in North America, we've, we've tended to approach the Bible as kind of a fact book primarily for information kind of something, a glossary to be consulted when we need to know something, or we've approached it for maybe moral lessons uh, for life or, or even theological information about who God is and the nature and character of God. And the Bible does have all of those things. The Bible contains all of those things. But because our primary approach has been driven by that, we've tended to miss the meta narrative, the macro level story. And it's interesting for us in this cultural moment in kind of postmodern Western society because postmodernism tells us to abandon all overarching meta narratives. That there's no such thing as something that's universally true for all people, but that it's relative and subjective. And our stories are individual stories that we kind of define for ourselves. But knowing that the Bible is mostly story and then poetry is a big indicator that the Bible's primary aim isn't just to inform us with the information it contains, but actually to form us by the story it tells and invites us to live in. And I really think that as a church, as the church in the West, that would dramatically change why and how we come to Scripture. 
There would be something about that that you would actually, you wouldn't just be coming to have it engage your mind for information, but you'd actually be coming with a posture ready to be transformed, ready to be changed, ready to be invited or immersed into that. And an example is just kind of like, what's the, the there's a big difference between uh, reading a Wikipedia article about the Amazon jungle and going on a week-long tour through the Amazon jungle, right? There, there'd be a, it's a big difference. Now, you could come out reading the Wikipedia article knowing a lot about the Amazon, but you haven't quite experienced the Amazon until you actually are there. And I think we've tended to approach the Bible like that, like an article to be consulted for information rather than a lived experience and a true story that we are embedded in and able to live out. And I think that's key because the difference happens when if you want to know how something works, what do you do? Well, well, you read a manual, but if you want to know what something means, you read a story. If you want to know how something feels, you read poetry. And that changes how we approach the Bible. So I want to try to just kind of set the stage for that. I want to talk a little bit about the power of story. And then I want to take us kind of Genesis to Revelation at a macro level, broad strokes across the story of the Bible. And then the rest of the series, we're going to have fun kind of dipping into how to read it in its various forms. And why can we trust the Bible? We're going to look at that as well. Um, I've quoted this before. Uh, a few weeks ago, but I'm going to read a quote again by Jay Kim in his book, Analog Church, because he really captures this idea of the epicness, right, of, of the story of the Bible, kind of the, the grandness, the bigness. Listen to what he says. The epic and expansive narrative of scripture is rendered down to a series of disconnected morsels of encouragement or self-help suggestions. He's saying that's typically what we do. And he continues, when we splice scripture this way and allow it to stand on its own without context or an invitation to engage the entire story, story, we end up missing out on the learning, growth, and transformation that's only possible when we dive deep into the story from beginning to end, experiencing its ups, downs, and in-betweens. Do you see the impact that that, that is trying to get us to consider when we approach the Bible? Um, that there's something about us being story-formed creatures. We've talked about this as a church in the last few months, the idea that all of us as human beings, religious or non, regardless of our cultural background or our education or our socioeconomic bracket, we all tell ourselves stories to make sense of the world we live in, that stories give our life meaning. And stories are used to answer the most meaningful and important questions about life. Now, some of the neuroscience around this is showing us that we are actually hardwired for story. We don't know how to live life and find meaning in life without framing that with story. Stories shape our morals, our our values, our our actions, our decision-making processes, our emotions. Other people would call this a worldview. The idea that we all have a a way that we view the world, not just by cold hard facts or logic or analytical methods, but instead by answering questions via story. Who, Who are we? Where did we come from? Why are we here? What is wrong with the world? And how do we fix it? And where is this headed? All of these questions are packed with answers that are embedded in story. So, 
uh, contrary to what postmodernism would tell us, actually everyone lives with a foundational meta-narrative. Everyone lives in light of a grand story, an epic narrative that gives them location and gives them meaning and purpose and energizes them towards a specific end, that story. It gives us a mental map. It helps us make decisions. It helps us understand good and right and the consequences of different moral decisions. It's, it's in all of us. It's embedded in every single one of us. And I think by design. You have to understand bef- long before the printing press, and we're only about 500 years into that, long before the printing press, long before the digital age, especially in the, the information age of the internet, individuals and communities are shaped by story. We always have been told out loud, specifically in community. Why? Well, because story invites us as individuals into the context of community to understand the most important things about life. It's really hard to tell a story by yourself to yourself, although some of you do. You got to stop it, right? That, that story is actually a community shaping thing that we're shaped by individually by story, but that ultimately stories are told in the context of community. And although the ways that we tell stories have changed, the technology behind how we tell stories, the power of story to change and shape culture has not. We still see that story is the fundamental driving force behind how we go through our day-to-day life. Every day, Hundreds of things are coming at you and I, scripts about what is most important, about what we should aspire towards, about what we should value, about how we should see one another and treat the other. Story shapes all of that. The film industry does so well because it's the primary medium that we tell story today. Your social media platforms tell stories. The gaming industry, again, just a booming industry right now, is one of the most immersive media to tell story. And it invites you into story. Now, why is this important? Well, it's an important apologetic. It's an important idea because here, right now, in our culture today, All the things that we're seeing, some of the unrest, some of the outrage, some of the discomfort, some of the mourning of things that we're seeing happening in the world, everything that we're seeing is a direct result of the stories we have been told and the stories we have told. Everything we're experiencing right now is because we have, for the last couple hundred years of Western civilization in particular, been told a specific story. If you and I are highly evolved animals with time and chance on our side, with no transcendent meaning or purpose or value, we don't have a meta-narrative. There isn't a meta-narrative to locate ourselves as to who we are and why we are. If there's no objective standard of morality or ethic, if, if the highest good is self-expression and self-fulfillment, which are coincidentally both self-defined, it brings us right to where we are that we live in this day and age because the stories we have told have shaped us to bring us to where we are so you have to understand we shape our stories but then our stories shape us and that is why it is vital for you if you are a follower of jesus and we as the church of jesus christ for us to recover It's understanding of the foundational story that we have. 
and live in light of it. I think, honestly, the church in the West is struggling like it is to make an impact in the wider culture because we have forgotten our foundational story. We've instead been shaped by a shallow, non-revolutionary, non-confrontational, culturally pleasing narrative that really isn't aligned with the countercultural kingdom of Jesus, and it's hurting us. And in, in, by extension, it's hurting our culture. If we're called to be salt and light in the world, that makes an impact. That pushes back darkness, and that pushes away decay, And right now, I think the the church needs to understand that I think we have forgotten our story. So here's the Christian claim. The Christian claim is that the Bible contains the true and alternative story of reality. And that the Bible's story is not a certain cultural or historical story for a moment, but it's the universal story of all humanity. It's the universal story of all reality that ultimately comes and it confronts every other story that we tell ourselves, every other story that we tell each other. The late philosopher Ivan Illich said that if you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. Our culture today is in desperate need of an alternative story, a true one, one that offers real hope, one that offers a real God, one that offers real satisfaction, real restoration, real renewal, real grace, mercy, forgiveness, and justice. And we have it. We're the ones that are supposed to be transformed by it. And our culture is a dumpster fire because we have not seen our role of being embedded in a world that is telling themselves an alternative story that doesn't line up with reality. We need to do better because the Bible tells a different story than the left and the right, a different story than the liberal and the conservative, a different story than postmodernism, atheism, secularism, relativism, consumerism, capitalism, progressivism, all ideologies and isms. It tells a different story. It tells a different story than any other story that doesn't have its origin in who God is and what God says. So that excites me because this isn't just a place for us to mourn that we have forgotten that and that we haven't transformed our culture with it, but it's also an opportunity that we have an opportunity sitting on our doorstep, in our communities, through our Facebook, whatever medium we have access to, whatever relational and interrelational thing that we are called into, that we have as an opportunity to tell the world an alternative story that offers true hope, that ultimately offers them something that will satisfy this deep soul hunger that they are desperately looking for answers for right now. So if that's the case, well, what is the story? What is the story? Well, here's how we'll do it. If you look on the very first pages of the Bible, okay, the very first page of this story, this this amazing book, you look on the very, very first page, okay, what does it say? How does it start? In the beginning... God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what does that sound like right away? What does it sound like? Well, it's, it's a story. That's how you start a story. 
in the beginning or once upon a time or, you know, in a galaxy far, far away, right? There's this idea that right now we're entering into a story on the very first page. Now, go right to the end of this library of books and go to the book of Revelation, John's visionary future picture of what is true now but will be fulfilled later. What does he say? Revelation 21, 5. And the one on the throne said, I am making all things new. And another chapter later, and they, speaking about the people of God, will reign forever and ever. So right here, if you just take them as bookends of this great library of writings, we see that this is a story. It's an invitation into a story that ultimately doesn't end with the last pages of this book, of this collection of books, but is actually an invitation to continue to partner with the God who is writing this story, who is going through history as this redemptive historical story that he is causing, that he is writing, that he's the author of this story. So just understand, as we jump into this and we look at scripture primarily as, as story and poetry, that we're entering into this ultimately as an epic narrative, this macro level story, the Bible does provide theological answers to life's important questions. It does. It's there. It does provide moral guidance for living, living a God-honoring life. It's there. It does um, show us the conditions of humanity and what has deeply been broken and what has gone wrong. It does. It does show us the true purpose and the identity of human beings. It does. It does show us God's rescue mission and his redemptive project in and through creation and his rescue of sinners. It does. But how does it do it? It does it in the form of story. It does it via an epic narrative. You know, sometimes you run into moral issues and you're reading through the Old Testament especially. You run into moral issues all over the place there where you're kind of like, what, what, what is going on? For instance, like, like why, does, why aren't there verses of just like, hey, polygamy is bad. When you have 40 different ca- figures throughout Old Testament who run into polygamy, well, why doesn't it just come out and say polygamy is bad? Well, because it uses story to show us that polygamy ends really bad. Right? So you kind of have to stick with it. You have to, you have to kind of embed yourself in the story to be able to recognize and see some of the moral framework that is embedded and kind of threaded through these stories. And it does it through story, but specifically epic story, epic narrative. Now that's actually a genre. That's actually a form of literature. It's rare, and, it, and it's an old kind of ancient form of literature, but some of you were forced to read these books, but like Homer or the Epic of Gilgamesh or Beowulf, these are all epic narratives, epic story. Some of the more modern kind of versions of this, obviously one of my favorite would be the fantasy and lore of the Lord of the Rings. Anything by J.R.R. Tolkien is an epic narrative. Well, what's the difference? Well, because there's a complexity to it. There's this uh, multi-layered story being told with complex plot lines that kind of splice out of each other. And then there's characters and conflicts and tensions and resolutions that are kind of all going on all over the place. That's an epic narrative. And that's exactly what the Bible does. It's exactly what the Bible offers us. And theologians for, for many years, for millennia, have organized this epic narrative in different acts, right? Kind of the acts of a a play or the acts of a redemptive drama. Often you hear it as kind of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and then maybe consummation. 
and you hear these different acts. I liked kind of like six acts. I'll just read them to you in the way that I kind of try to understand this macro story. Act one is creation, the work of the king over all things, heavens and earth. Act two, fall or failure, right? That we have a rebellion. We have a problem introduced into this meta-narrative, this epic story. We have a rebellion against the king of all things. Act three, redemption initiated. We see that through the nation of Israel and the kingdom of Israel ultimately. Act four, we have redemption accomplished. We see Jesus come as the king to bring in the new kingdom. The kingdom that failed before is not going to fail because the king is here. Act five, redemption continued. We see the mission of the church, a priesthood of all believers, a royal kingdom that we get to live in as we look to and follow and worship King Jesus. And act six, redemption completed, the return of the king. And that's ultimately what Revelation leaves us with. This, the present reality of the kingdom reign of God on the throne, but ultimately the yearning for the future consummation of everything that is true about this kingdom. Everything that is true about this king. Now, when you approach the Bible like that, it definitely changes how we read it. It changes how we respond to it. It changes how we find ourselves in the story. And it does change even our 15-minute morning devos. It helps kind of deal with some of those tensions. It encourages us to kind of like sink our heels in and stick with it in the long run to understand that this is an epic narrative and there's patience that, that, that is required. Uh, I've told you that you know most, most North Americans don't even read a book after leaving high school, right? But even more rare is us who would read an epic narrative like that. The most kind of prized works of literature of history are the hardest ones to read, <laughs> There's something deep and profound and complex about them. That's why they're so recognized. That's why they're so memorable. So Steinbeck's The East of Eden, for instance. Read that. That's not a like sit down, enjoy a coffee and just, just read it for 10 minutes. That's like a, oh man, I gotta, I gotta commit to this thing. And that should be our posture to the Bible as well. This lifelong commitment to, to open up these pages of this epic narrative and to engage it in community together because ultimately the story that we live in is the story that we live out. And if we don't understand that our call is to live in this story and then go and live out this story, we are going to struggle to connect the truths that are in the pages of scripture with the real life and the reality of our day-to-day modern existence. It's gonna be hard. And so that's my encouragement for us as we continue through this series is just to understand that we actually need to kind of be careful not to miss this beautiful forest for the trees. And although you got to study the trees and get in and and do the detailed work sometimes, and we're going to talk about that in the series of how to study deeply, we also need to make sure that we we don't only do that, that we also kind of take this scan outwards and see the scope of the Bible from its macro level. All right, so what is the storytelling? What is the story saying? Well, we're gonna move quick. But if you remember what we just saw, the story starts with in the beginning, God. The story has begun and notice that it doesn't start with an event. It doesn't just start with an event with no character development or no people present. It starts with a person. It starts with a personal God. 
And this God then we start to see is revealed. We start to see the nature and character and actions of this God. This God speaks and things happen. This God is above all and over all. That he is not, um, he's not succumbing to the presence or power of anything else because he's the one that is sovereign over everything else. He shapes things. He gives function. He assigns purpose to all things that are. His word gives life he, and he's knowable. He's a knowable God who's personal through what he says. Now, right from the jump, right away in the book of Genesis, Genesis is an amazing, amazing text, an amazing book that ultimately is a confrontation against other ancient Near Eastern origin stories. So remember what I said, we have an alternative story right away from the first pages of Genesis. It's confronting other stories of origin. One example is in Genesis 1.16, um, it describes the sun and the moon, but it doesn't use the Hebrew words for sun and moon. It's kind of strange. Instead, it says greater light and lesser light. Well, they already have words for sun and moon. Why not just use the words sun and moon? Well, because the sun and the moon were objects of worship. For other cultures in the ancient Near East, they were worshiped as gods. And by not acknowledging them with those words, what is being said through the creation story is that this God, our God, the true God, who is the origin of all things, actually is the one who created the sun and the moon. So don't worship those things. Worship the God who is above all things, including the sun and the moon. So right away from the first pages of Genesis, this baby preaches. This, this confronts cultural norms. This comes against any other story that any culture or society would tell itself. And the creation narrative continues on and it's laser focused, not on kind of the furnishing of how things came to be, but on the identity and character of this purpose-giving God. That God goes through and he forms and shapes, and then what does he do? He forms and shapes it, and then he gives and, and, and assigns function. He identifies things, and then he assigns function, and he assigns purpose, and he, assi- and he assigns order and beauty and, and dignity and value to all of the different furnishings of creation. And there's a pattern that's a kind of a poetic flow that comes through this story There's a setting, there's a backdrop, and then God fills it, orders it, and then assigns function to the things in those backdrop. Then we get a little bit further and we see kind of the climax of this amazing kind of poetic narrative that's going through. And we get to Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and we see God say, let us create mankind. Let us create them in our image. So everything else was done and kind of flowed out of God and it was a reflection of who God was. But now there's a a shift in the narrative. Well, let's create mankind, Adam. Let's create humankind in our image so that they too actually reflect into creation what we are like. This community, this triune God, this Godhead of Father, Son, and Spirit creating and creating community and giving individuals dignity and worth and value. It's in the very first pages of this story. Now, the key difference between human beings and everything else that was created before them is the language. Let, let the earth and the water bring forth. And then it, and it tells us what the earth does, what water does, what plants do. But with human beings, it says, let us make human beings in our image. This is a unique creative act. There's something very different happening here. 
And then, just like everything else, God assigns function, but it's a unique function. It's a special role that's given to human beings as what? Image bearers. The Hebrew word Adam, that later becomes the, the proper pronoun for man. But image bearers have a specific job, a specific call, a vocation, a responsibility to do what? To co-rule, to be co-workers, to be co-representatives with God in community, to rule over all creation with God. God is the only one reliable source of good at this point in the narrative. And the best thing about that, what's very good, is that he has created man and woman to reflect that goodness and who God is. And also within the ancient Near East, these are key terms because an image or the likeness of something was used by idols that are put in temples and by kings. That these were physical representations of gods or of kings, of royal figures. That's exactly what happens in this creation narrative. That the garden is this cosmic temple and God puts human beings in there to represent him as a bit of a trophy, a statue to himself to commemorate this beautiful act and it's very, very good, he says. So to be image bearers is to be given a unique role, a unique responsibility of reflecting what God is like by caring for and ruling over creation with God alongside him. And we know how the story goes. That doesn't stay the same. That there's a failure. There's a fall. There's something that's introduced into the story, like every good epic story. That there's, there's a, a conflict introduced, and it's, it's sin. Sin enters the picture. But sin doesn't enter the picture. The problem doesn't enter as just moral or, or ethical or behavioral, but relational. There's a relational breach through vocational irresponsibility on behalf of these image bearers. And instead of understanding and living in light of God's definition of what is good, human beings define what is good and right and beautiful and true for themselves. Sin ultimately chooses self-rule over God's rule. Sin ultimately dethrones God as king and devalues God and self in the process. So in the very first pages of the story, instead of living as image bearers of God, we hand over our image bearing power over to non-gods, over to other things. And then we live life pursuing those things to non-gods that ultimately will not give us the same goodness and definition of good that comes from God himself. Sin disorders creation. And it leads to a decreation that we see throughout the pages of scripture and ultimately in human history in our own lives. So we have an opportunity. We have a, a decision to be made in the first pages of scripture and in our life. Are we going to trust God's definition of good and evil? Or are we going to define it on our own, which ultimately will lead to death? See, the pages of the Bible and the history itself showcases this condition. That freedom from God ultimately leads to slavery. And that's exactly what happens as we go through the story of the Old Testament. That this leads the, the nation of Israel to slavery. And God goes and he frees them from slavery and offers them himself and tells them how to live life again in light of their image-bearing status with him. But that's not just a story of the ancients. That's not just a story of one culture. It's an expose of the human heart in all cultures that you and I have this dysfunctional relationship with authority, that you and I struggle 
with this autonomy from God that we think goodness is going to be defined by freedom from God instead of understanding that God's definition of good is what leads us to freedom. And that happens throughout all the pages of Scripture. And there's a restlessness. There's a not-at-homeness. Why? Well, because it leads to exile. And we did a series in First Peter a little while ago, and we looked at this motif, this theme of exile. The idea that we're kind of not home, that we all feel this kind of hunger, home hunger, homesickness in us, and it's an exile. If you follow the pages of Scripture from the garden all the way across through national Israel's exile, we see that this is a constant theme, that we've been separated from our original intent and purpose and function as image bearers with the God who created us because sin separates us from who we're created for. And it separates us and leads to dysfunction in what we're created for. Now, enter the nation of Israel which is kind of the whole big middle part of your Bible, like this whole middle section here that's kind of like, it's long and it's epic and it's this long, huge narrative of this nation of Israel. Now, what, what's so important about it? Well, it's a long stretch of the narrative. It's very important. So all the way from kind of Genesis 12, where we're introduced to this character, Abraham, this man who is going to be the one man who God says, through this one man, I'm gonna rescue and bless all men and women that he takes one family, Abraham's family, and he's going to bless all nations through one family. And then from Genesis 12 all the way to Malachi 3, we have this highlight, not of how awesome Israel is, not of how chosen they are, but of how we can't outrun the sinful condition that was introduced in the garden. The big middle section of our Bible is just this showcase of Not how awesome this nation is, but how good this God is for loving them and choosing them despite them. And Israel's history is this long, unfolding, complex narrative of God's promise to take one man from the garden and then from Abraham to use one man to save all men and women, to offer redemption and freedom and hope and true purpose, to offer salvation to all people through one group of people. Does it sound familiar? Well, that's the story of the pages of Scripture. And Israel's history is a long play-by-play of brokenness, a long story and play-by-play of human failure and brokenness that ultimately stem from rebellion against God and a bypassing on the human calling as image-bearers a definition of good and evil that doesn't align with God's definition of good and evil. So just understand that as you go through that story, rather than looking for heroes in the pages of scripture, rather than looking for heroes and morals of stories, instead, the flip side of that is true, that we should be looking at the story of national Israel, not just being a national history, but the universal history of all humanity. It's a story for all people. And I think the book of Judges does that really well where there's this constant refrain. It's almost like this chorus throughout Judges of everyone did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel because everyone was their own king. That's what it's saying. It's kind of a hyperlink back to the garden to say, remember the problem. Remember what happened. So Israel's history in the, is the garden story kind of writ large. That we have it start with man and woman in a garden and it really just magnifies to become the story of all humanity. And just as the first image bearers 
ultimately abandon their call to know God, trust God, and reign with God, Israel too abandons their call as a national image bearer of this God who covenants himself to them, who makes a promise to not abandon them even though the pages are full of humanity abandoning him. That's the beauty of this story. But notice, this story is not just an epic one. It's not just kind of complex, and, but it's also a tragedy. And tragic stories, a tragedy, is also a form of literature. It's actually a genre, right? And some of you would know the most famous tragedies are written by who? Well, Shakespeare, right? Hamlet, King Lear, Romeo and Juliet, Othello. These are tragic stories. Now, what does that mean? Well, in a tragic story, there's this crazy kind of turn where heroes are actually tragic heroes. Heroes aren't the ones who kind of like ride off with their cape at the end. But instead, heroes in a tragic story are brought down by their own flaws. That there's something revealed about their character or their shortcomings that is their ultimate end. They meet their end because they are their worst enemy, ultimately. And tragic stories highlight this power between good and evil. And ultimately, no one is safe in a tragic story, right? The good guys often lose. Job? right? There's, there's kind of a lack of poetic justice sometimes. We're kind of left going like, what? Right? The Bible is full of that. Conflict and resolution, but not resolution in the way that ultimately you would expect sometimes. And why does it do that? Why do tragic stories do that? Because it's cathartic. There's a catharsis that draws the audience in, and you can actually put yourself in the place where you identify and empathize with the characters in those stories. Why is this important? Well, because the only true hero of this epic, tragic story of the Bible is God himself. He's the only hero throughout the pages of the Bible. So every time we've kind of moralized and like Sunday school eyes different characters, all we've done is we haven't actually read for what it was. Like King David, um, keep reading that dude's story. There's, there's no way in, in any way that you would hold up David and be like, be like him, kids. Yep, do that. Serial adulterer, murderer, be like him. Not at all. But we haven't read it honestly. We haven't read it for what it is. We've read it literally instead of literarily. And we haven't allowed the tragic nature of this story, the story of the Bible, to point us to the one hero, and that is God himself. It offers us a window into the story, but ultimately to see ourselves, to see our own failures to see our own pride, to see our own sin, to see our own cosmic authority problem that we ultimately want to define what is right and true and good for ourselves. You are your own tragic hero. You are your worst enemy and I'm mine. And the second we get that, 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 that the biggest problem in your life is not outside of you, but inside of you, we're getting much closer to the heartbeat of the Bible. And there's something so beautiful about the tragedy that constantly just goes page after page throughout scripture and it builds this tension. It's just kind of like you're reading it and you're going like this cosmic authority problem, it's gonna ruin everything. And this is showcased page after page, century after century, millennia after millennia. And guess what it does? It provides the backdrop for the arrival of the only one who lives in step of this image-bearing call, Jesus. And when Jesus comes into the scene, and when Jesus walks onto the stage of human history, Israel has no king. (laughs) 
Their king is gone. Their kingdom is gone. They haven't had a kingdom for 600 years. The Jewish people who were supposed to be the nation to represent God and bless all nations is now not even a nation. They're a cultural and religious minority within this big monster called Rome, which is a throwback to Egypt. And when Jesus comes into the scene, it's a throwback saying, you're slaves again? You've abandoned your call again. And I'm going to come and I'm going to rescue you. The king arrives. And all four gospel biographies stress this about Jesus. Not just that he came with kind of like cool rabbinical teachings or not that he came with like, you know, moral soothsaying and he was just so gifted at, at, at being an orator. None of that. The gospels all stress from very different lenses and angles and experiences that Jesus is the king to come and overturn the cosmic authority brokenness that was introduced in the garden and that showcased across the pages of scripture. Jesus' very first sermon that leads us to his best sermon, his, his most popular sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he unpacks this kingdom ethic. His very first sermon, it's actually written like a royal inauguration speech. He shows up and he talks about this being good news. Right? There's actually a, a declaration. There's something to be announced. And in the ancient world, that would be used for like the birth of a royal, a royal baby or, or conquering uh, an, a wicked nation by a king. That, that this is a big deal. There's something being announced. And what does Jesus say? The time is fulfilled. It's now. The kingdom of God is here. It's good news. Repent and believe it. Repent and believe the good news that the king is now here. He's riding into human history. Finally, finally to answer page after page of this brokenness. The king is here to overturn all things everything we thought about power, everything we thought about goodness, everything we thought about beauty and right and wrong and morality and value and dignity. He's come to embody it. He's come to fix it. And he's saying, turn from your false stories. The offer of repentance is turn away from some of these other stories that ultimately are not going to provide you and me the value and worth and promise and hope that is only found in the God who created you. Embrace me, Jesus says, as rightful king and join me in the inbreaking of the kingdom into human history. And Jesus' entire mission, everything he does, everything he says, the power that he displays in miracles and healing and different things that he does, everything is centered on him bringing the kingdom of God. It's a royal manifesto proclaiming not only that God's kingdom has come, but that it has actually come through him. That's quite the claim. That God is becoming king again. That God is going to be enthroned again because sin has dethroned him. That God is going to be looked at by all nations, not just by one nation. That there's going to be this amazing universal story that is told and universal offer for all people to come and have their image-bearing status. Not just be the thing that's kind of there and they don't know what to do with, but this image-bearing status of the God that they were created by restored and renewed and fixed and flourished. That where the first image-bearers in the garden failed and where national Israel failed to be image-bearers, Jesus succeeds. And honestly, one of my favorite passages about this 
is Colossians 1. And then we'll, we'll land the plane and apply a couple things. Watch what Colossians says. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. See the language? He's the image bearer. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created. He was there in heaven and on earth. That's a hyperlink back to heaven and earth. Visible and and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Now, this is a new, a new body, a new community. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, resurrection power, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's first above all. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile, bring back to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I love that because it's just so beautiful that we see in the garden one tree used to turn what is truly good and beautiful on its head. And we see Jesus using another tree on Calvary to turn all of that back. The decreation that started in the garden after creation is now overturned and creation and renewal is again on offer. I love that. And in Revelation 5, we see that this is leading somewhere that this is going somewhere, that this story isn't done. Revelation 5, 9 through 10 says that we will all sing a new song, that we will all praise, that we will sing this song, that we will sing that same song that Colossians 1 talks about, that your blood, Jesus, has ransomed a people, a people, one people, from every tribe, language, people, nation, and made them a what? A kingdom, a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign on earth Does that sound familiar? They will reign on earth. That they will have dominion over the earth like we always were meant to. Jesus came to fix that. Jesus came to offer that. Jesus came to take take away the sin that separates us from that. It offers us humility to come and repent and kneel before the God who is perfect, holy, and righteous, who we don't even have uh, any right being in his presence. And Jesus makes that possible. We can come back. Perfect justice on the cross for us, those without justice. And that's what's on offer. And that is how he creates a new people. To close, I want to show you how the book of Acts kind of does this. It's, it's amazing how the book of Acts ends. Because if you remember, the book of Acts was written by Luke. And so Luke writes the gospel of Luke and then he writes the book of Acts. And the, the gospel of Luke is kind of like tracking with Jesus and everything Jesus did and said and taught. And at the end of Luke, it's kind of like, okay, so he's going to do this. And then the book of Acts is, so what did he do? And then it's the, the acts of the church. It, it, it's what actually happens for the, the gospel message of Jesus to go to the ends of the earth. That's the promise. And watch how the book of Acts ends. I love this. Watch how it ends. Acts 28, 30 through 31. Speaking of the Apostle Paul, Paul lived there, speaking of Rome, two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. The the end. That is a, I mean, Acts is a crazy, Acts is kind of like Pirates of the Caribbean meets all sorts of craziness. Like it's just this fast-paced, action-packed book and it ends there. It ends without an ending. You're kind of left hanging going, but, but what? What happens then? Like what? So Paul's just living there, hanging out, preaching. It's like, okay, why? 
Well, because even though this is the end of the book of Acts, it's not the end of the story. This is Luke's way of nodding at the church at every, in every age saying, to be continued. You see, the more that we indwell the story and embed our lives in this story is the more that we are transformed by this story. It's the more that we can go out and live this story. It's the more that you and I are gonna long for the completion of this story and go out and be agents pushing the story forward because Jesus changes everything. That he's the only one that can. And the church, as image bearers, renewed, restored, forgiven, blessed by this grace of the God who has come and died and rose for us, we have this story and we're living in this story. And if you remember as Jesus kind of gets, right before he just kind of takes off, he talks to his disciples and he says, hey, I'm the one with all authority over heaven and earth. Just like I was in the beginning. I'm the one with all authority. And he commands the church to go in light of that. Go into all the world. And he promises to fill them with what? Power. And we're all called to live within this true alternative story and live it out. And as we move towards its inevitable and promised end, where he will make all things new, we are called to be agents of this renewal that ultimately will find its end with us singing that new song. And church, the opportunities are endless. Pete Hughes, in his book, All Things New, he writes this, if we want to rewrite the stories of our cities and communities, it starts when we begin living in the story of God. When we then begin to find our voice communicating the good news of the story wherever there is an opportunity. And the opportunities are many. People in our culture are desperately hungry for an alternative story, but not just an alternative story, a story that is true. One that offers true value, true hope, real love, real freedom, real acceptance, real grace. We have this story. And we ought to live as products of it because we are products of it. As followers of Jesus, we must tell this story and live in light of it, to live in this story and then to go and live out this story and then invite everyone into relationship with the author of this story because he's still changing lives. He's still rewriting people's stories. He's still changing hearts and minds and he's still working towards its inevitable and promised end that all creation will acknowledge Jesus Christ as king over all heavens and earth. Let me pray for us. Father, we are desperately sick for an alternative story that offers us true hope and true life. And Jesus, you didn't just come to offer us nice things to say to offer us theology to quote, to offer us interesting doctrines that we should try to live in light of, but you came as the fullness of God in flesh. You showed up into your own story to show us what it looks like to know you and love you and follow after you. And I just pray that you would continue to transform us from the inside out. I pray for each of us who already know you that you would empower us that you would draw us away from sin, that you would continue to to have us repent well 
and to get away from nonsense and silliness and instead live in light of this amazing, inevitable, promised end to your story that will come. And I pray for everybody that doesn't yet know you. I pray, Spirit, that you would just have them turn from any alternative story to yours. The true best story of human history to show them, God, that they are loved, that you are for them, that you desire them, and that you promise to finish what you started. We love you. We need you. We ask that you would just empower us and equip us to be your church in a world that ultimately is dying and desiring you. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.